Salutations, listeners. Sivalis Vallejo. Valamagulis. Nanu, nanu. That was a very subdued intro. Yeah. Good on us. Soft. Thank you for tuning in. This is Three Men and a Basement, and we are the Ultra Crapidarians. My name is Colin McLeod. Mark Hulp. Action Jackson. Xmas Flaxen Jackson Waxen. Saxon. Saxon. Xmas Jackson Flaxen Waxen Saxon. He he was Waxen last week. This week he's a Saxon. Yep. Next week he's going to be Taxon. I have a sax in my basement. In this podcast, we review movies. We review movies and we deliver to you, the listener, an average schmuck's opinion about hidden gems in the wide world of cinema. In the show, we try to target movies that are not absolute blockbuster smashes. We also try to target movies that are not so obscure that you couldn't get your hands on a copy even if you wanted to. We're not we're not reviewing some obscure art house film that one person made in 1982. We're also not reviewing Star Wars. A Star Wars. No Star Wars. Instead, we like to aim for those movies right in the middle where you may have seen them and you may have forgotten about them or you're wondering if they're worth another watch. Maybe you've never seen them or never heard of them and we're bringing them to you for the first time, but we're trying to aim for those movies that we think haven't been given their proper shred, right? I those, agree. Yeah. Perhaps those, lost to time. Yeah. And uh, you're wondering if they're worth checking out or worth seeing again, mm-hmm. and we bring you those opinions and yeah. we say... Yeah, go get it. Or no, don't. Get a pizza instead and go watch The Office for the 1500th time. I mean, honestly, though, it depends on the pizza. If it's a good pizza, yes. I would agree. I I mean, like San Francisco pizza, fuck that nonsense. Sorry if you're from San Francisco. You lost us Alabama. Now you're on to San Francisco. They put broccoli (laughs) on pizza. They're monsters, all right? Yeah. It's gross. Yeah. Uh, You know what the difference is uh, between boogers and broccoli? What? Uh, Kids will eat boogers. That's a fact. Yeah. So what? Uh, what? What else we got going on today? Yeah. So uh, today we're going to deliver an opinion about whether or not you should go and see the movie Enemy at the Gates. Enemy at the Gates, two thousand one movie, rated R, solid. Mm. Yeah. Definitely R. I wouldn't say it's like like hard R, you know, but like it definitely is rated R. I don't know. I I might. I might say it is harder, just with the with the graphic violence. Like I think, let me let me try to defend that point. I'm personally a little desensitized to it, but there's a lot of death and blood and and, and graphic depictions of war in yeah, this movie. I think you're onto something there because I myself I watch a lot of war movies and you know play violent video games and stuff. So I I feel like yeah I am very desensitized to it as is a lot of people in my generation. But you know yeah. that's almost like a Saving Private Ryan, you know, and it's yeah. just like visceral in its depiction. Black Hawk Down. I feel like in R, like on a 1 to 10, I'd give it a 5, maybe a 6. Yeah, I would put it in middle, a 6. Middle of the road, yes, the violence is more than like your standard, like, we got an R rating for like swearing a little too much. But it's not offensive. You know? No, 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 for no. sure. It's just, it's just super violent. Two hours and 11 minutes. Uh, I do not feel like this movie is two hours and 11 minutes. No. This movie feels like it's like an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. Every time I watch it, I'm surprised at how quickly this goes by. Yeah, I would say if it went longer, I would have felt like it dragged on to me personally. However, I think it threaded the needle there. Um, I didn't feel like it dragged on. It was just, it was crafted very well. There, there were certain scenes that moved insanely quickly. There are certain scenes that took the time they needed to tell the story that they were telling. 
So I feel like, Mark, you think it was right on the edge of being a little too long. Jackson, you felt like it sped up and slowed down. I felt like it raced along. Like, I could not believe how quickly this movie moves. Yeah. And, and I don't want that to be confused with the criticism. I, I didn't feel like it dragged on. I just felt like it took it right up to the edge. It didn't fall over, but it it was kind of at that point where, like, okay, I feel like the story's been told. And the movie ended when I would have wanted it to. So I, I don't want that to be interpreted as a, as a criticism. Uh genres we have action drama war they're forgetting one yes the big one and that's biopic this is a true story we'll get into the imdb description and then later in our spoilers but it is a true story with hollywood you know how much license they took uh is is kind of hard to say hard to say it's suspect i'm sure there are plenty of historians who know exactly how much license they took um but we don't, so we're not going to speculate. Um, we just know that Hollywood is notorious for that. Um, are we, okay, so the IMDb description has this as, A Russian and a German sniper play a game of cat and mouse during the Battle of Stalingrad. That is a very bare-bones description that fits this movie. Yeah, I yeah. think I think the two other pieces... First of all, I, I'm absolutely fucking amazed that this description has the phrase cat and mouse in it because that is exactly how i would describe the events of this movie mm -hmm. it's it is two snipers going after each other that's like the the sort of lion share of this movie however there is sort of a a maybe maybe you call it a b story um you could actually maybe even call it the a story and call the sniper battle a b story but it's basically about how the russian propaganda machine kept hopes alive during world war ii using soldier exemplars yes absolutely there was a storyline with the characters and there was definitely a storyline with the um the environment and how it changed and fluctuated at that time and it is the true story of so, a Russian soldier named Vasily Zaitsev. Yep. And, and one thing I do want to add, and I, I don't want to go back too far here, but when we talk about the genres, a lot of times drama gets thrown into, into just kind of the, the word salad when you're trying to describe a movie. This movie, I felt, clearly had drama as well as action. Like, I felt like the, the, the genres that we listed off, I don't know how, how to phrase it. They were very distinct. Yeah, so, yeah, and I think I know what you're getting at in that, like, drama is such an amazingly broad category in that it basically encompasses everything that's not comedy. It's a catch-all in many respects. And this movie felt very pointed, and you, I feel like you can drill down to very specific aspects of this movie using sort of the genre approach. But throwing drama in there feels almost like a waste because what war movie isn't a drama, right? But it does apply here. It does. It absolutely does. Because when you think of, I mean, so this is the way my brain works. I associate drama with trauma. And it's just one of those, like, this movie is traumatic. This movie is, I would argue it's hard to watch for those that, don't enjoy Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, these gritty war stories. It's very heavy. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with all of that. So who directed this thing? Uh, so director is Jean-Jacques Anod. Oh, yeah, Jean-Jacques Anod. Oh, Jean-Jacques Anod. Anod, 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 Anod. I have not heard of this guy. No, I haven't either, but he did a great job. He also wrote it, so I think the writing-directing is always a potent combo. It allows for a lot more, I think, creative latitude, and it makes typically for, like, a tighter, better story and shooting. 
So who we got in this movie? Ooh, okay. So title character, Vasily, played by Jude Law. You know him. Yeah, you do. You love him. Dr. Watson. Where else have we got Jude Law from? I mean, like, literally anything ever. Right. He's in the most of Wes Anderson stuff, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. He was in Grand Budapest, I know. I That's mean, another great film. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah, Jude Law is in damn near everything. Um, Ed Harris. Oh, We've talked so about good. him before. Mm-hmm. He was in, uh, what is that movie? It's like, like Sun Spiker or... It's like they're pushing through some kind of Arctic thing. Yeah, yeah. it's... Uh, it was like the... Icebreaker or something. Yeah, breaking... This isn't the name, but it it's, it just reminds me of Snowpiercer. I'm sure that's not the name. No, yeah. it's giving me the name. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, Choo Choo Berber. That's right. That's yeah, it. that's what it was. Yeah. Ch- Chugga Chugga Berber. Chugga 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 Berber. That new band name called yep. it. Chugga Chugga Berber. Yep. Um, this also comes <laughs> out. Uh, they perform in parkas? They do. They do. <laughs> Even at summer festivals, Chugga oh. Chugga Burber, they, they are dedicated to their craft. God, that sounds like a really cool show to go to. Uh, <laughs> let's see. We also got uh, Racial Vice. Yes. Is, is uh, it Weiss? Or no, is it is, Vice? It, I used to always say uh, Weiss. It is actually Vice. Vice. I, I watched something and they did the correction. Rachel Vice is one of my favorite actresses. Of all time, Barfew. And this movie is one of, I think, her best performances of her career. I would agree. I always see her face and I'm like, hey, it's the girl from The Mummy. Yeah, yeah. Rachel Weisz's best best known role is definitely uh, from The Mummy. Yeah, I was I was so young when I saw The Mummy for the first time that, like, that's just who she is. Yep. Yes. Me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we also got Bob Hoskins. Oh, Bob Hoskins. Fucking amazing. Okay. Shmee. Shmi, uh, Bob Hoskins would tear me to fucking pieces if he were A, alive, and B, heard me saying this. Maybe John Leguizamo will beat me to death on his behalf, but Bob Hoskins did play Mario in the Super Mario Brothers movie from the early 1990s with John Leguizamo and Dennis Hopper, and apparently John Leguizamo and Bob Hoskins were drunk most of the time. Uh, you'd um, have to be. They I mean... would, because they, they would, they, they feuded with the director terribly, and it was, it, basically everything that could go wrong on that set went wrong, uh, and um, they would go to one of their trailers and get drunk in between takes. Oh my <laughs> All right. I would too. Quick hot take, I love that movie. I, I love it for nostalgic reasons, yeah. but objectively, it's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. <laughs> but, but I but, uh, Yes, but for, for, <sighs> for nostalgic, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, that movie is probably like a 4.5. Nostalgia in that instance probably adds two points. At least. Like, for, for me, it's a 6.5. For the general viewing audience, it's 4.5. It's such a good movie. Uh, Bob Hoskins, though, um, so this, I, this is important, is like, I know we said this is like one of Rachel Weisz's like best performances. This is arguably Bob Hoskins's best performance, and and I think if you're listening to this and you're not going to get past spoilers, revisit us after spoilers, and I will make my argument. But I I can't do it until spoilers. But he is outstanding in this movie. Another uh, another prominent actor in this is Joseph Fiennes. You might not recognize him by name, but you would definitely know him by face. Uh, he's in, I think, five seasons of The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, he's a prominent character in that. He's um, also in Shakespeare in Love. Yes. Uh, Wings of Eagles, Hercules, uh, American Horror Story. Like, I mean, he's been in something that you would recognize, but when you hear the name Joseph Fiennes, you, you don't necessarily associate the face with the name. Here we got motherfucking Ron Perlman. Oh, Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman's so good. Oh, 
Oh man, anything so that good. Ron Perlman's in, you know, as soon as you see his face, you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know? shit's about to go off. Fucking Hellboy, man, dude, he's so good. Dude. War <laughs> never changes. <laughs> <laughs> he's man, I okay in like rank order of people, I would love to have guest star in this podcast. Fucking Ron Perlman is, like, top three. I mean, could we fit Ron Perlman in this basement? I don't know, because he's such a big figure. Yeah. yeah. Ron Perlman's, like, physical form? Probably. Ron Perlman's balls? I don't think so. I think that no. man has two swinging bowlings between Hard his legs. Hard to get legs. a wheelbarrow down the stairs. Yeah. No, that dude That dude fucks. I mean, he's got to. <laughs> he's got to. He's, you don't want to see Ron Perlman... Not fucking. Nope. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. It just dries up. Are you familiar with the Dark Ages? That was the last time he was celibate. <laughs> oh uh, it just keeps us all lubricated. Uh, okay, so let's see. We we covered who directed it, who who's in it. I think we're ready for uh, thumbs up, thumbs down. Would you recommend? Yeah, I certainly would. I mean, I know how I, I, I love throwing out caveats. The only caveat I can throw on this one is if you're sensitive to, to war movies. But everything else, like this, is a well-made movie. Hundred yeah. percent. If you don't like war movies, you will not enjoy this. But the story is well-made. The characters are likable. The story is passionate and full of action. It's very heart-wrenching. So I would say, yeah, if you don't like war movies, if you get squeamish by gunshots and bodies, you probably won't enjoy this. But I would a hundred percent recommend it if you do. Yeah, I recommend this movie to, like, everybody that comes in front of me. This is one of my go-tos if people haven't seen this movie. You know, again, we've talked about this sort of ad nauseum, but this is our criteria for the podcast, right, in many respects. It's sort of that ratio between how many people have heard of or seen a movie and how good a movie is, right? And you want the ratio between the quality of the movie and the the number of people who've seen it to be super, super high. You want the rating to be very high and the number of people to be very low for us to review it. And I feel like even though this was a fairly large release at the time, the number of people- It was 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago. And the number of people who've seen it is shockingly low. And uh, even with a star-studded cast like this. And for that reason, it is a perfect example of the kind of movie that I wanted on the podcast and I would recommend to like virtually anybody. Honestly, even people who don't like war movies, I, I would probably recommend this to them with the qualification- if you were going to watch a war movie, this is a good choice because it actually has things to offer other than war shit. Like, there are other interesting things going on other than the war shit. You've got romantic elements. You've got historical elements. You've got political elements. It's not just the blood and guts of war. And for that reason, I think if you don't like war movies, if you're going to pick one up, this is not a bad one to choose. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. So that's that's three wrecks all around. Yeah. Are we uh, ready to? I don't know what Mark did, but it sounded like in reverse, perhaps. <laughs> it was. So he's, he's unspoilering. Ooh. Whoa. I don't think I'm going to edit that out. I like it. Best not. <laughs> Uh, okay, so, spoilers. We're, we're deep in spoiler territory. Uh, this is, I think, a movie that we're going to have to go beat for beat on um, yeah. and, and sort of explore every inch of it because every inch of it is fucking chock full of really powerful, potent shit. 
Full disclosure to the listener, I think we're going to have to take a few asides, perhaps, for levity, because we are in some sort of deep, heavy territory. I think we're in a similar boat, not exactly the same boat, but a similar boat to Jacob the Liar, yeah. where, like, the content is very dark. Not quite as dark as Jacob the Liar, but fucking right there, right? Yeah. It's holding hands with it. And we definitely need to inject some levity, um, some, ma- some magic carpet rides. I do feel like it, it's very interesting. And and just to kind of try to, to place this recording, there's currently a conflict going on that involves Russia. And um, there are some references in this movie that, that really, you know, resonate, n- not necessarily in a dark way, maybe a little bit, kind of what's going on. So I, I, I don't know why I felt it necessary to bring that up, but it's just, you know, this is a movie where the protagonist is the Russian army or the Soviet army at that time. And there's just currently a, a global conflict going on as well that felt very thought provoking, perhaps, you know, there, I think there's a lot more nuance that I could put in there, but um, it, it definitely felt interesting to see a movie where the Soviet army was the protagonist. You were rooting for the Russians. To, to be fair, though, I, mean, I don't mean to cut you off, but like this movie was in absolutely no way, shape, or form rah-rah Soviet Union. No, 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 like, no, no, no. They no. were definitely the bad guys, like yeah. as yeah. well as the as well as the Nazis. It was two bad guys there fighting was, against each other. It was it was about a good-hearted Soviet soldier who was fighting in this war and just happened to be on one side of two mental nations. Yeah, you've got Stalin versus Adolf. Yeah, and I think we'll get into, like, why they this is not rah-rah Russia in, like, a few moments when we get into the opening oh, scene. But, yeah, um, but, I mean, this this wasn't about the Soviets. This was about the characters and yeah. how they navigated yeah. to two colossal powers, you know, between them, you know, and, and even one thing that I, that I enjoyed about this too is the antagonist, um, uh, played by Ed Harris. He's given depth, you know, mm-hmm. um, not that he's he is in some way not, he's not presented as relatable, but he I don't think I think he's totally relatable. I, d- I agree. Like I mean, I know he's a Nazi, but like the guy he was humanized. In, yeah, in in the sense that like you're relatable in that like you know okay product of your times. I can't justify why that guy was in the military. Maybe he was a shithead for other reasons. He probably was. But there were, you know, people don't exist as like this binary, like you're good, bad, you're right, wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, your people exist as complex elements in a complex world. Well, and here's a guy who like, he wasn't a good guy, but there were a lot of elements to him that were very understandable. Yeah. Uh, so taking this movie beat by beat, it opens with a young Vasily Zaitsev, you don't know it's him at the time, but a young boy, let's say, with a rifle looking through a scope as a wolf is slowly approaching a horse that is chained in an open field. The horse is clearly bait, and you're seeing the wolf draw closer and closer, and the kid is obviously trying to kill the wolf before it gets the horse. It gets nearer and nearer, and you're hearing what you think actually is a voiceover. These sort of instructions, they're kind of, what would you call them? Uh, a mantra. Like a mantra. like a, Yeah, like a mantra. Like It's like self-talk. I am the stone, it begins. You know, I am still. I am unmoving. And it keeps going like that. And it's basically a way to calmly instruct yourself on what to do before firing a rifle. And then it almost immediately cuts to an adult Jude Law in a train car that's packed full. Um, like sardines, like shoulder yeah. to shoulder, no room to breathe. 
if they were shot, nobody would fall down kind of packed. Yeah, honestly, it's it's a little like... The conveyor belt. Like that, but also I was thinking like it's a little like the Jews during the Holocaust. And, you know, if you've ever seen a movie that depicts that, where they're all sort of crammed into this sort of open style boxcar. And they're all just shoulder to shoulder. They're moved in like cattle. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a mix of like soldiers and civilians. And he sees Rachel Weiss and she's reading a book. They pull into a station and these very sort of aggressive Russian military officers are pulling all of the civilians off of the train really, really rapidly and basically saying, this is a soldier's train now. Like, you guys are off. Soldiers are on. More soldiers get on. It gets packed again. And they end up hooking up, like, you know, anti-aircraft guns. Yeah, and so the, the, the train actually pulls away and the cars are left behind. And in place of the engine, they hook up this, ex this, this military engine that has, like, these anti-aircraft, you know, these, these flat cannons on mm -hmm. top. Yeah. And it's very, like, Soviet state, right? It's this... I'm fairly certain that the sort of middle of World War II preceded the advent of brutalist architecture, but it was very brutalist or proto-brutalist, like, even though, again, that was more like of a structural architecture kind of thing, it was very industrial, very, like, this train was going to war. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you hate to call it cool, but it was kind of cool. It was, it was great imagery. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. So this train rolls away and you're hearing talk about Stalingrad. You're hearing talk about the Nazis invading, about this being sort of a last stand for Russia as the Nazis are pushing further and further into the Soviet state. And the train pulls up to what can only be described as hell on earth. And this was a last ditch effort by the Soviets to try to stop the Nazi push by basically getting as many soldiers as they could to the edge of the Volga River, where they cross them in boats. Now, let me preface this. I know I've, I've been doing a lot of talking, but I love this scene so much. Um, it's a hard scene to watch. I'm not saying it's like a pretty or, or enjoyable scene from like a moralistic standpoint or an emotional standpoint, but it is such an amazingly powerful scene for so many reasons. It is, and I actually wrote this down, um, if I had to choose an opening sequence that gets close or rivals the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan, this is what would come to my head and this is what I would give people. It is potent. Uh, so basically... Raw is the word that comes to raw. mind. Raw, no, totally, totally. And it, and it, I think, you know, it was one of those things where like it really got at what was happening to these young soldiers, these boys, really. And that was amazing imagery where they're like, they throw open the train car and these these boys i mean they're recoiling from what they're seeing they're seeing like boats on the vulgar getting sunk by you know the dozen they're seeing stalingrad on the other side of the river in flames and they basically throw them onto these boats and they're crossing the river and this first part is just horrendous they're crossing the river and the german planes are just lighting them up uh they're coming in they're dive bombing them and they're just they're just ripping holes with these like big like 50 caliber wing mounted machine guns just blowing holes in the soldiers and the boats and a lot of the soldiers as you can imagine are like fuck this um because they don't have a choice in the matter and they're jumping into the water to get out and the Russians are mowing down their own soldiers who are jumping out of the boats trying to get away from the carnage. They're shooting the cowards for abandoning the effort. Yeah, and cowards is like a really like fast and loose term here because they are like, you know, there's, there's, 
a fairly, I think, thin line between cowardice and like common sense because in this context, they're practically the same thing. Hmm, right do I face German infantry or German Lufenwaffe? Right, yeah. They're quite literally choosing to try to preserve their own lives is just kind of a reason. They're just picking a way to die. Th that's all it is. Yeah. They're, they're given a several several options of ways to die mm -hmm. and they have to choose. Yeah. That's it. So they, they land on the other side. They land in the, in the city. This is, I think, one of the most... In my opinion, probably the most powerful part of this movie. They're rushing them forward, trying to get them to storm the German lines. And uh, I'm not going to save this for quotes because I think it needs to be said in the moment. But this is the quote that I tell people when I'm explaining this movie to them and what it's like and what they were trying to do. Um, there is a guy with a bullhorn. Uh, could it be called a bullhorn? What do, you, what do you call it? It's just a cone. I would say it's not a proper bullhorn, is but it? But it is. It is the equivalent of a bullhorn. What they had. Whatever cheerleaders carry, he's got he's got one of them, and he's shouting orders at the soldiers as they're coming ashore, and they're distributing rifles, but only to half the men, and to the other half they're distributing a five round clip of ammunition, and this guy is shouting with the bullhorn, the one with the rifle shoots, the one without follows him, when the one with the rifle gets killed, the one without picks up the rifle and shoots. That, the yeah. first time I heard that line, I was like, good God, they're sending half of their soldiers into the battle without a gun. And they're knowing that at least half of them are going to die. Yeah, yeah. They're counting on at least enough of them dying to where the half that don't have rifles can pick up and pick take up, and up where they right. left off. Yeah. Jesus it's, Christ. It's incredibly powerful. And as we talked about earlier, when they're trying to like create the setting for this, you know, this is where the heavy war imagery is for the most part. And and it paints a very vivid picture. And this is like thick in the war. This is September 1942. So this is like smack dab in the middle of the war, especially smack dab in the middle of the war in the European theater. And it, it helps that the narrative too, because it, it definitely, it shows that this is how they are motivating their their soldiers. They're doing so by by threat of violence. Yeah. You know, they're, they're making examples of people. They're wasting ammunition that could have been saved for the Germans on their own men because it's more valuable to them to, to send just, the message right yeah uh, it's very heavy so they end up like charging the german lines they get cut to ribbons by a machine gun fire the germans have artillery the germans have planes the russians have none of this stuff um they basically meet like you can imagine equal forces you know in terms of numbers meeting head-on one of those forces only half of them have guns and the other half, or the other the, force is heavily armed yeah, the to other, the teeth. Yeah, the other force, everybody has a gun. Many have machine guns. They have tanks. They have artillery. And they're all and in they cover. Have, and they have planes. And they're not rushing. They're they're not doing the, the charge. They're entrenched. They're entrenched. And so you can imagine the Russians get absolutely slaughtered. And those of them who turn around and run away get cut to ribbons by the Russians, by their own people... Who do have machine who guns. Who do have machine guns. The, the machine guns are basically used only to cut down the, the people who are running away from the slaughter in the middle of Stalingrad. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure there's a few historians in uh, among our listeners, but I believe the Russian name for that machine gun was the motivator. I, I, can't, I can't weigh in on that. I don't know. Whoa. <laughs> um, 
Hey, you wanted levity. <laughs> oh, was that a joke? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I can't fucking miss that. <laughs> I know he's serious. It's we're we're so heavy in the shit. That yeah, like... we were. So, I was so I was so deep. I fucking that joke just missed me. It certainly was not motivating though. The Russians, not known for their humor, I could see that as like the best thing they could come up with. Yeah. Yeah. That's um. Sorry, bad joke, <clears throat> bad form. <laughs> um. But yeah, so so that battle ends horribly. Russian lines are broken to pieces. And basically, the next thing that you see is a car rushing through uh, the streets of Stalingrad, taking an artillery shell to like the, the sort of like rear quarter of the car. It flips over and rolls. And this guy sort of like there's paper everywhere when, when the Leaflets. car gets gets hit. There's just there's paper strewn everywhere, so like you immediately know that like this was someone who was distributing propaganda, who or rather was not a part of the war effort, but was a part of the communication arm. So he crawls out of the car after it flips over and crawls into this like fountain, drained fountain. Yeah, he's crawling through the mud and over the bodies of his comrades, like literally not touching the ground. Yeah, because like he's crawling over, over so many bodies. bodies because there's just so many of them. And this was, and I say this with the disclaimer that I did not enjoy the imagery, but th- I will say this was one of my favorite scenes in that he's crawling over the bodies and finds a place to camp, grabs a rifle from one of the bodies, and then the Germans are rolling forward with their tanks and their vehicles, and they pull up to this fountain and open fire on the bodies just in case there were a couple of men that were still alive. And despite the fact that bullets are flying into the bodies directly next to him, he somehow miraculously survives this onslaught without flinching or reacting at all. And the Germans move on and he crawls to the edge to get a vantage point. And that imagery to me was so powerful in that he was so stoic in the face of his own mortality. He knew that there was about an 80% chance he was not going to make it out of that fountain, but he didn't move. He didn't budge. Yeah, his character evolves quite a bit, but I think one one other thing that sort of like speaks to his character that happens immediately after that is he crawls and immediately grabs a rifle with the intent to start killing Germans. And you can tell by looking at him, you can tell by his actions, you can tell by the fact that he was driving a car through Stalingrad and not, you know, part of the front lines, that he is not your run-of-the-mill soldier. He's not an infantryman. No, he is not. And so the fact that he would, like, grab a rifle and be like, I'm going to fucking do my part, that says a lot. It says a lot about his commitment to the cause. It says a lot about his... It says a lot about the potency of nationalism. (laughs) It does that, yeah. The effects of desperation as well. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, but again, if you were so desperate, if he just wanted to survive, he would have laid there. He would have laid there and he probably would have tried to get out of there, you know, but he didn't. He like he pulled the rifle up. Yeah, that's and fair. you could tell that he really didn't know what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he hears a, a sort of pss, 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 yeah, that's where behind he, him. It's where he meets uh, Jude Law's character, he, who conveniently is also entrenched in the same fountain using the same tactic. Right, right. So he steadies his rifle, and Jude Law, who's also kind of camped out right in the area, ends up kind of taking charge of the situation, or rather is handed the rifle because it's it's established between the two of them that he uh, he's not a good shot. Well, what's the line? He asks him if he... Uh, he says, do you know how to shoot? 
Right, right. (laughs) So Jude Law takes the rifle, ends up knocking out all five Nazis that are, you know, across the courtyard. Headshots, just one after the other. It almost felt like a video game-esque, you know, just the the way that... It was very Call of Duty. It was, yeah, Yeah. and like, you know, you hate to say this about watching human beings die, but like, you know... The way that If you're going to pop five people in the head, like, the Nazis aren't a bad choice. No. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So this sets up the dynamic between what's what's the name of the of these characters? We got Jude Law's character, Vasily Zaitsev, Vasily, uh, and then what's what's the other guy's name? Tanilov. Tanilov. I'm not gonna remember that. Um, call him D. 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 Uh, Sweet Daddy D. Yeah. Don't call him that. Um, but this. <laughs> This is the catalyst for the rest of the movie. One of which, the guy that that we saw in the car that got flipped, he's a political officer. You know, it's his job to disseminate information. And Um, create propaganda. Right. And And motivate people. Yep. And Not by shooting them. Jude Law is just an infantry man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. We'll get to that. It kind of felt like everybody else that had his job sort of was pretty into that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. But it, it sets up another good scene where, and this is kind of, I don't know, flash forward maybe a few days, maybe a week. They, they get out of the courtyard and they're back with the rest of the Russians. And we're introduced to Bob Hoskins' character, uh, who is... He's an he, officer. He plays uh, Khrushchev. Okay, I'm, I, I've got to launch into it because we've reached Bob Hoskins. This is why I feel like this was Bob Hoskins' best role because he's actually playing somebody real and Bob Hoskins absorbed every element that was Khrushchev and just became him. I mean, he he moved like him, he sounded like him, he acted like him, his mannerisms. I mean, Bob Hoskins kind of always had like, you know, a bit of a bit of heft to him. But it was perfect. You know what I'm saying? He really lived that character. And that is not an easy thing to do, right? And he didn't miss the mark. Um, so I'll get off my soapbox, but Bob Hoskins fucking nailed it. Oh, as, like a little as Russian Nikolai bear. Khrushchev, huh? Yeah. He was like a little Russian bear. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's very good. Um, so, And this is the same Khrushchev that, who later became head of the USSR. Not so, Bob Hoskins. Well... You know, the actual. We actually don't know what he was doing in like the 1960s and 70s. That's so fair. Uh, questions. I got him. Uh, <laughs> so we got a lot questions. of questions. I got him. Congress. Sexual. It's like an apostrophe. <laughs> just hit my brain. Thank you. Made an epiphany. Oh shit. <laughs> Sorry. We got to talk about the scene immediately. Like not scene, oh, but the, the yes. beginning of this scene where clearly Khrushchev is like a a senior officer, a very senior officer, like direct representative of Stalin and this scene opens with him in a room with a very frazzled very distraught Russian officer who's basically saying they have fucking artillery they have tanks they have more men they have all of this shit what do I have and Bob Hoskins is chewing him out and he's like you have a sacred duty to not lose this city which like okay sacred duty my ass like you don't have the men you don't have the fucking weapons like Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I feel like this quote deserves to be kind of thrown in there. Bob Hoskins is berating this officer who clearly is at the end of his rope. Hoskins kind of tells him, I I have to report this to the boss. And then like he pushes his sidearm across the table and says, perhaps you'd like to avoid the red tape. What the fuck? So the guy picks up the gun puts it in his mouth, and Hoskins kind of moves into that other scene. A bunch of Russian officers that are kind of lined up in this hallway, uh, one of which is the guy that we saw in the truck that got flipped. Danilov. Danilov. I told you, I'm not going to remember. As... Can, can I interject? I just, every time I see 
in a movie or a TV show, someone physically put the gun in their mouth. It's just this visceral reaction because it's it's like, oftentimes it's depicted off screen. They suggest the element of suicide, but the fact that we actually witnessed him put the gun in his mouth, it just like, it triggered something in me. I was just like, oh, oh, they went there. Yeah. Also, guns are kind of dirty. It's true. You ever licked like, gunpowder? Not recently. It doesn't taste good. That's it's not healthy. To, no. To it's you can get disease from snorting. It is worse. That ain't your grandma's season. Snorting out. guns. Snorting gunpowder. Don't don't snort guns. Uh, kids, kids, don't snort guns. Take it from me. It's it's not worth it. I've never. You've never snorted one gun. I've never snorted a single gun. Prove it. All right. Dare programs work. <laughs> I you know what? I'm convinced. <laughs> All right. I'm convinced. Fair Ronald, enough. Ronald Ronald Reagan war on drugs. War, right. war on guns. I'll sh I'll prove it right now. Here, take a look at this. Facts. Wow. Wow. He did, he did it. Yeah. yeah. That's Over, proof. Overwhelming evidence I, right there. I'm man enough to admit when I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah that's right. Uh, okay, so Bob Hoskins walks out of that room, and what happens, Mark? Well, I mean, we he kind of starts talking uh, to the, the soldiers about motivating them, and then we kind of hear in the background, you know, boom. The guy certainly tried to avoid that red tape. Um, didn't avoid all the red, though. Is that dark? Oh. Dark. <laughs> um, I, like, being that it's the Red Army, it's I was pretty just, hard to avoid. I was just going to say, I was just going there. I was like, this could be taken in a lot of different ways because yeah. he was definitely a member of the Red Army. Yeah, that's how I meant it. And Not... also, at this point, it wasn't, but it definitely could have been October and the Hunt for Red October. Oh. It's a good movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, right. Luke's call sign was Red 5. That's true. Um... Big Red is a very popular type of gum, cinnamon flavored. Um, oh, I know uh, where you're going with this. Clifford. Clifford yeah, the Big, the, the red, big dog. red Dog. Red Dog. There we go. Full circle. Uh, walking down the hallway, he's trying to, he, he's asking the officers, like, how can we, how can we motivate people, more or less? And the, uh, Maybe don't shoot them. May, may, well, maybe. I feel um, like that is the opposite of the, their policy. They I were mean, like, They were like, shoot more of them. Uh, right, right. We need to make an example. But out from kind of behind Danilov. From the depths of the ranks. Yeah. Kind of like, he doesn't step forward, but he says... Uh, give them hope. Give them hope, basically, yeah. And um, that, again, is like a pivotal part in the movie where it sets the stage that they're going to try to inspire the soldiers with something other than the end of a rifle because it's clearly not working for them. And that really kind of sets the stage for the rest of the movie and the relationship between the two main characters, one as a as a publicist, more or less, and then Jude Law's character as this, this hero that's set up on a pedestal. That was something that's, it's it's very obvious, but it's something that I, like, took explicit note of this time when I watched this movie, which is hilarious because I've seen this movie so many times, was the double fact of, like, the Russians were losing the war in, like, the obvious and sort of militaristic sense, but they were also losing the war for their people, for the, for the hope and dreams of their people, and this scene is what really illustrates that, and this is a scene that I was, like, very familiar with, it's a very pivotal scene in the movie, but... It's the kind of thing where, like, I feel like I didn't divorce those two things in my mind when I initially watched this movie, but having watched it this time, I can see that they were waging a war on two fronts. 
Hmm. Right. They were combating the loss of hope and they were fighting the Nazis. It was a battle for the souls of their people hmm. as much as it was a battle for Stalingrad, the actual physical ground. Yeah. And both the battle against the Nazis and the battle for the hearts and minds of the people were laid at the feet of Vasily Zaitsev. Yeah. And his actions. No pressure. No pressure. No, it's 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 a few it's a few million people. Also, an entire nation. Also, perhaps the fate of the world is like resting, kind of, sorta, a little bit on your shoulders. But like you do, you boo boo. Like you, on you'll, this you'll kid be fine. Who used to bullseye womp rats back home in his T sixteen. Yeah, and they're no bigger than a meter. It's true. It's a small thermal exhaust port that's yeah. just above the main port. A right, meter. Yeah. right, right, right. But but we don't watch a Star War. On this podcast. We've watched the Star War, but not on the podcast. Privately, privately. We will not talk about we it. We watch our privates while a Star War is on. What's in happening? A, in a dark room. <laughs> in, a dark, in a dark room in a galaxy far, far away. Yes. I like it because Star War, the, the second word in Star War is wall. Which and is what this movie's there about. There we go. Yeah. And also, also, if you really, really hammer Star War, it sounds a little like Stalin. It's true. Who was not in this movie. But almost well, he, one could argue he was in this movie. I, His portrait was prominently portrayed. I, mean, I, I got the impression times. that like they were like flirting with it. Like, are we gonna have somebody play Stalin? Like, nah, mm, let's not tell that. Did, line. It did feel like it felt, felt like they dangled it a little bit. Yeah, we yeah. got we got a mural. Let's look up at it for a second. Shift forward a couple days. Yeah. He was also, um, fun fact. He was not a very nice person. Who Stalin? Stalin. I never met him. He kind of looked like Mario. If you want to hear them, I've got some very like interesting sort of like random Stalin facts, but we don't have to go into that. We can talk about that later. We can talk about that later. All right, so what happens next? Okay, so like Mark said, that's really what like launches this movie. And I think we can go at a little bit faster pace because we sort of laid the groundwork the way this movie does. Um, this is where it sort of so, takes off at a clip at this point. Yeah, so basically Vasily and Danilov are now friends. They form a very tight bond. Again, they're not only sort of like working partners, but they're friends. They immediately make friends with this Russian woman and mother. Oh, and Mrs. Filipov. Mrs. Filipov and her son. Sasha. Sasha, Baron Cohen. That's that's his origin story, yes. by the way. Yeah. And then also in that same scene where they meet them, they meet Tanya, who is uh, Rachel Weiss's character. So they meet all three of these people. They become very sort of like integral characters. And at this point, Vasily Zaitsev, Jude Law's character, is racking up the kills. And at this point, he has 52 Nazi dog tags to his name. Yeah, he's, he's getting fan mail from other, like, Russian citizens. Yeah, who from are farmers and yeah. from people that are like, hey, yeah, do it for us. Yep. You, you, <laughs> hey, yeah, do it for Hey, hey, you. Hey, hey, do it for us. Yeah. Go ahead. Kill a Nazi for me, would you? <laughs> yep. If you're, you're going to write a letter, <laughs> kill, go ahead and kill a Nazi. Yeah, you really get the impression that they're... Well, it's not even their plan. It's um, it's Danilov's it's plan. Danilov. Yeah, yeah. Is but is it works like working. it works like gangbusters. Yep. yep. And and it's it's both and right. Like Zaitsev is fucking lighting up the Nazis, killing them. But then they're also like taking his kills and sort of creating propaganda around it that's really inspiring people. And people are feeling hopeful. People are feeling like they're being defended. They feel like they're pushing back against the the Nazi menace. 
And all of this leads to, and this is something that like, again, I forget about in this movie is how quickly he comes on the scene. But basically like in the next scene after they meet these three characters, Ed Harris shows up in a fucking train. That's important because we just reviewed Snowpiercer. Bingo. He, he was also in a train. He was on a train. Yep. Planes, trains, automobiles. <laughs> would you eat them on a train? Uh, I would not, could not on a train. And I, I will not, will not in the rain. I um, think there was also rain in this movie. There there were some drops. Yeah. I would, I would definitely eat green eggs and ham. Mm. I'm, I I'm have. smash some green eggs and ham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so basically the next scene involving Ed Harris sort of coming off of this train, it gets explained that he is uh, basically the top Nazi sniper. He trains all of the German snipers. He runs the sniper school. This dude is the best of the best. To be perfectly honest, he's probably the best sniper in the entire world at the time. Yeah, I would he... say that's not a an arguable point. And they sent him with the explicit task of killing... Vasily Zaitsev. Like, literally, they took this guy away from training all German snipers and sent him to kill one person. Like, if that doesn't illustrate how much damage Vasily Zaitsev was doing to the German ranks on, like, an objective level, but also, like, inspiring Russians and demoralizing the Germans, I don't know what does, to be yeah. perfectly honest. Well, he's a major... As well, you know, so, like, he's an officer, but he's also on the front lines. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. He's where... a serving officer. Yeah. And they did it because they were like, nobody else can fucking take this guy out. Yeah. Which like, is so we... badass. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, like, it's so fucking cool. Can you imagine, like, you're so badass that they're like, we have to send literally the best person in the world at the, this after you. The Nazis are basically like, hey, he's killed all the people you've trained, so you need to take him out personally. I know. It's like, I feel like in my head, I'd be like, 99.9% .9 of me would be like shitting my pants and being like, that's fucking, oh my God, there's somebody hunting me. That is so unsettling. I hate this so much. But that other like 0.01% would be like, Okay, but it's really fucking cool that they had to do that. It's honestly, it's honestly very flattering. I'm kind of, I kind of feel badass right now. Yeah, yeah. you know, I, but I'm definitely, well, and, I'm and, definitely pissing in my drawers. And Zaitsev does, <laughs> he experiences that. So as he's getting this, this propaganda and this fan mail, and he's, he's seeing his portrayal get publicized. He's sort of like soaking up the limelight a little bit. He's like, yeah. I am Vasily Zaitsev, you know? I am the guy. Like, he's... He, he. I wouldn't say he's getting arrogant or cocky at this point, but he's definitely feeling it. He's definitely feeling the inspiration, but at the he's, same he's, time... You might say he's getting high on his own supply. Yeah, but at the same time, he's like, hey, look, I'm just some kid that got drafted into the Russian military. Like, you need to stop telling people I'm so amazing. We like, also didn't mention that he, like, was not trained as a sniper. No. He was an infantryman who they recognized could shoot, and they were just like, by the way, you're a sniper now. Yeah. <laughs> so after he saves Danilov, Danilov uses his political powers and his public, you know, persona to sort of boost Vasily into this Russian hero, which is how he got appointed to the sniper division. So that's how it ends up that Vasily Zaitsev starts picking off these German officers one by one by one. And when they meet Sasha and the rest of the gang, 
you know, Sasha says, well, how many today? And he goes, oh, just two. Just two. I only ended two human lives. Yeah. It's no big deal. Only yeah. took out two German Nazi officers. And he's like, hey, why didn't you take out that third one? And Vasily says something very poignant, which I didn't write down, but now I'm remembering. He said, well, he was just an infantryman. He was just a footman. He wasn't important to the cause. And it wasn't worth giving away my position. It, that's the big thing. He says, it wasn't worth giving away my position. Because if he were to give away his position to take out somebody who wasn't making a measurable difference, then he could have ended his life right then and there, and the Russians would have been back to square one. He was only there for the big fish. And he was very much created. You know, what Zaitsev was, yes, he was a talented marksman, for sure. But what he was to the Russians was... A product of propaganda. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that the comment where he said, you know, how many did you get today? And he says two. I think that that's almost like a little nod to that in that, like, he's just a man. You know, it's not like he's racking up 50 kills every day. He's not the mythic figure that he's portrayed. He's just a man. And and that, that kind of comes through later on in the movie, throughout his arc as it progresses, that mythos is, it starts to, to kind of fade. But anyway, um, back, back is, to where he, we He were. does become sort of a mythical figure. Um, I believe that the Russians' name or nickname for him was uh, Rudy Tootie Point and Shooty. And, but it's uh, it's said in Russian. Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 very it's not anywhere near as alliterative as it is in English. Um, but yeah, no, he he was definitely the Russian Rudy Tutti point and shooty. Yeah, um, devastating, devastating, just cold uh, iron death. This yeah. guy. So uh, Sasha, we've we've talked about him a little bit. He's a he's a young boy lives with his mother. He is a shoeshine, you know, more or less. He's he. <laughs> He makes more, money. More, yeah. More. That's what he does. That's his thing. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Hedges. He's a shoe shine, more or less. <laughs> yeah. No, he uh so he's, he's a confidential informant. Well, yes. Yeah, but on the surface, he's just a little rug rat who's cleaning the boots of the Nazis, trying to make a little extra coin. Okay, let's just, like, explore that for a second, because he is literally a snot-nosed kid. Yeah. And I mean literally in the most literal sense. Like, this kid, every fucking scene has just boogers just running out of his nose. Boogers and shit everywhere. infuriating. They're like, okay, we need a snot-nosed kid. And they're like, they literally got a snot-nosed kid. They picked some kid who's allergic to ragweed and dust, and they were like, you. You, Russian, summertime, go. Yes. (laughs) I don't imagine there was a lot of Kleenex going around at that time in Stalingrad. He had a sleeve. He had a sleeve. Good God, man. Uh, But a sleeve can only take so much before it can't take any more. He was wearing a green coat. Perhaps it started Mm, as a white coat. Yeah. Yeah, eventually it's just... It just solidifies. I believe they call that rigor mortis. Booger mortis. Booger mortis. Booger mortis. New band name, I call it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's gross. Rather than picking them and flicking them, he's just wiping them and letting them go. Can we all agree that, like, we all know what booger mortis is? Yeah. Like, like when the booger's drying your nose, and then you go to, like, you go to, like, pick it. You know, or you like, oh, God forbid, you like push your nose to the side to kind of like scratch feel it. That sharp and there's pain. a sharp booger. That's, oh, bo- that's booger mortis. That's booger mortis. We have figured out what to call that because that doesn't have a name, nope. to my knowledge. And um, the Germans probably have a name for it because they have a name for fucking everything. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that is, that's, that's booger mortis. Their name for butterfly is Schmetterling. The Middle Dutch name for butterfly literally translates as butter shits. 
I've had those. Uh, you, I've, I've had, I've had the butter. I'm shit. pretty sure it's synonymous with the German word for diarrhea. <laughs> so, so what it is? It's the goofer schnuffen. <laughs> oh, you, you don't want the goofer schnuffen. It's not. It's. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The uh, goofer schnuffen is also our German listeners. Uh, nope, nope, nope. They, they'll like this goofer schnuffen. <laughs> How do you spell schnuffen? Um, uh, S C H schnuffen. Oh, SCH Schnuffen. Got it. Yeah, it's a German letter. Uh, Zergufel Schnuffen. Uh, they are dead. Actually, is Zergufel Schnuffen, is that a band or is that the venue that Chugga Chugga Berber and Booger Mortis are playing at? It's I both. Think, I think it's the fringe stage, but it's also a band. Okay. It was like named for the band. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So back to people dying and Nazis and um, death. What else was going on? Oh, you were you were going off about Sasha. Sasha was more or less a shoeshine boy. Yeah, yeah, more or Ale- less. Allegedly. Perhaps. He has a special relationship with our antagonist, but he also has a relationship with, relationships may be the wrong word, but with Daniloff. Daniloff is playing Sasha to get information from, oh man, what is his name again? What's, what's Ed Harris? Koenig. Koenig, uh, yeah, but yeah. it's Ed Harris's character. Ed, yeah. The um, German sniper. And it's, it's interesting too, because Ed Harris's character has... Some affection for Sasha. He has a rapport for sure. Yeah, and they're almost like I. It's kind of fucked up because like he's a kid. He's like twelve, but he's like he's definitely a full-on double agent. Yeah, like he is interfacing with both sides. The Russians, typically with Danilov, but but also with you know his mother with Vasily directly, and then uh, mm-hmm. he's interfacing with Koenig, Ed, Ed Harris's character, and he's going back and forth between them. And providing actionable information. And, you know, Ed Harris, to his credit, is, you know... Surprisingly honest with the kid. Well, he is, but but he's also, like, it's a very smart thing to find a stupid kid in a war zone and mine them for information by giving mm-hmm. them chocolate and whatever it happens to be. Yeah. That's an amazingly, like, uh, an amazingly adept tactic that, like, clearly none of the other Germans thought to employ... And he's doing it. What he doesn't know is that the kid happens to be friends with some other fairly crafty Soviets that are playing the kid against the German and and feeding him false information and collecting information from him. So the first scene that we see Koenig and Sasha interact, Koenig passes two cans of sardines, a cut of bacon... And a chocolate bar across the table. Now, the the funny thing about this scene to me is he passes the two cans of sardines and hears silence. Then he offers the bacon and receives silence again. That would have gotten me. Then he's like, oh, that doesn't do it. Here, here's a full-size fucking chocolate bar. Then the kid sings like a canary. Yeah. It's chalky. Yeah, as I'm watching it, there was um, some uncertainty over you know whose side is Sasha really on you know and and I think I think it's true Sasha's just kind of a stupid. Well, you're kid. supposed to. I mean, that's definitely like the way they filmed it. Was like you, know. you you don't know who to you don't know if you should trust him or not. Yeah, and is I, he a stupid kid or is he? And ultimately, he's 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 just a child. He's sharing information with both sides, thinking that he doesn't have an enemy. You know, I mean, he knows that he does, but he's not acting as though he does. But know? but he definitely is. I would say on the Soviet side. Yeah. Like, he actually feeds false information to the Germans. Mm-hmm. Multiple times. And gives intentionally actionable intel from his interactions with Koenig, like with the powder on the boots. Yeah. Versus, like, when he gives intel to Koenig about the Soviets, it's usually by accident. 
and mm-hmm. he's just a stupid kid. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Um, so we, we, we played out that, that relationship. Rachel Weiss's character. This isn't a love story, but there is a bit of a love triangle that goes on throughout this movie between uh, Rachel Weiss's character, Zaitsev, and Danilov. Um, hey, you it's remember. A- I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I don't know if it's like a love triangle per se, because typically in a love triangle, like at least one party is sort of flitting between two other parties. She is not flitting. She is super into Vasily Zaitsev, and he is into her. Mm-hmm. Danilov is super into her, and it is not uh, reciprocated. reciprocated at all. He offers her a fish that just walks behind her. It's like sniffing her. Yeah. You don't sniff and offer a fish. You he, sniff a fish. She, he, You know what? She should have gone to HR. That's should've. a fact. Yeah. Should have. What's the Soviet HR's number? Uh, 1-800-they'll-probably-fucking-kill-you. Yep. <laughs> so maybe that's why they didn't. It's it's toll-free, though. That's true. No, so You can save a couple bucks. <laughs> uh, so there save is... a, c- a couple of rubles. <laughs> but, but, but love triangle in the sense that, like, we have three characters... And there are feelings that are exchanged between one or both of them. Like it's, there's, there's certainly a tension there. I was very pleased that this didn't turn into, like they didn't lean too heavy on it. I think relationships, they played out and they, they provided depth to what was going on, but it didn't suck up too much airtime from this movie. I think they also like, one thing they did a good job of is in several scenes, they sort of reiterated the idea that like, we could be dead tomorrow. Let's do what we want to do today. And I think that was like kind of critical for the development of their relationship. Once it's sort of like once they admitted to each other, like how they felt, the acceleration of their relationship was really took off. It was very fast. And and I think that was in no small part due to this, like, you know, I don't know, call it nihilism, but like the sort of, you know, nihilism adjacent philosophy that you have to adopt when you're like in the middle of the front lines of a war yeah right what we haven't talked about yet is rachel vice's character is essentially on the front lines she's committed to the fight but she's also she's running a militia yeah she's providing a service that she believes in and that's incredibly important in the war effort is fighting for something you believe in because Otherwise, morale would be bottom rung. So, Danilov... She's so badass in this movie. Oh, she's great. So Uh, badass. Danilov is obsessed with her. Obsessed to the point where he's like, hey, I want her reassigned, and I want her near me at all times. So, he gets her reassigned to the political division where she's intercepting messages from the Germans because she speaks German and, you know, is intercepting these messages and translating them and giving the information to the Russian headquarters so that they can, you know, position their soldiers appropriately. Which, to his credit, to Danilov's credit, he's a master wordsmith, and he really makes a convincing argument that, like, she speaks German in a time and place where, you know, people who, like, finding Russians that speak German is, like, really fucking hard. Yeah. And so, like, every message she translates, every code she cracks, every bit of intel that she gives them... Saves thousands of lives. Saves lives and kills Germans. And, you know, he makes that argument, and it's, like, so fucking convincing, but at the same time, you're like, but you definitely just transferred her because you're creeping on her real bad. Yep. Yeah. At which point, he sniffs her repeatedly and offers her a fish. As one does. Yeah, I mean, I've done it. How do you think I'm married? 
That's a good point. It's yeah. the fish. It's the fish. See, I offered bacon and it took like two years. Oh yeah, no, that's it. it bacon will work, but it's it's a slow process. Should have mm. used the cod. Yeah, no, go for, go for the cod. I think it was a, a sturgeon. Haddock, haddock will do it. Haddock is the mm. the that's the golden ticket. Yeah. Sturgeon is a bottom feeder, so definitely slower going, but but works just fine in a pinch, just like in a in a war. Maybe a, a that scenario. was his issue because he offered her a sturgeon. If he'd offered her a bass or a trout, oh good god. Ooh, no, you don't offer a bass because that's a very like presumptuous fish. It that's is fair. You yeah, know, everybody talks about it. Leading a little bit too forward. It, you know, if you were to go with a sockeye. Mm-hmm. Or even a king salmon. I mean, that would be too pretentious. Right. So, and catfish. I mean, that's that's just that's just saying you don't have money. Right. Might as well have a dogfish. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is also a type of fish. It is. I've caught one. I caught Jackson while he was catching a dogfish. It's true. Right in the ear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Left weird. ear, by the way. That's, that's weird. I don't know what that means. I know it has something to do with being gay, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, Cedric, if you're listening, I apologize. Okay, so... Anyway, sorry, I'm still on the left ear thing. Right, so Vasily and Tanya get together and then some in... It's a weird scene. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You guys, you guys were talking about this, like, during the movie, and, like, I know there are, like, unusual elements to that scene, but I find that scene so incredibly hot. Like, that is, that is seriously, like, like... Among the hotter sex scenes, really? Yes, for me. Now, now let's just let's just kind of state it's not graphic. It's well, you see you a booty. You see one bum, and it's a good bum. But it's it like is, a, it's, it's a Rachel's half bum. bum. It's a half bum, and we've we've talked no, about. No, it was a whole bum. Was it a whole bum? She it might. Whole bum. She might have had a bum double, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sit there. You never go full like bum. like the like the directors wanted. I'm gonna pretend that was Rachel Weisz's bum. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Rachel booty. It was. Yeah, like, basically what ends up happening is, like, in the spirit of that whole, like, we could die tomorrow kind of thing, uh, she visits Vasily while he's sleeping, quite literally, in a pile of people. It's weird. And Like, they... he's sleeping next to a fat, sweaty Russian guy Two who's of them. just vaguely sleeping, like but he... also vaguely awake. Yeah. Like, he's quite literally shoulder to shoulder sleeping on the ground, and she, like, goes to him. And, um, I mean, there's people walking the corridor. Like, they're in the middle of everything. Like, what, what's, what are your other options, right? So <laughs> they end find up... find a corner? Like, yeah. where would you go to pee? All right, do it there. Like, yep. What, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It was get weird. Your wee-wee shot off. Sure. That'd be no good. I mean, that is kind of probably what ended up happening. That would be sad. Got the wee-wee shot Sad off. backwards is das, and das no good. Das is <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So, I was so curious to see where you were going with that, and I was not disappointed. I don't know what I expected, I, I led but you there. it wasn't that. I led you there, I opened the door, and we walked through it together. Yes, we? we did. We held hands <laughs> we, the whole time. It was beautiful. Uh, but no, okay, so that scene, so they, they end up... Making uh, Congress. Make, making... Whoopee. Yeah, Congress. Sexual. Sexual. They, Intercourse. They do the nasty and the pasty. The beast um, with two backs. The beast with two backs. Mike Piazza. Yeah. The horizontal tango. Pretty sure it's the horizontal mambo, isn't it? I, I've always heard tango. Can we just agree that they made love? They had sex. They really, like... They done fucked. Y- y- you There's know, no love, are you saying? Are you you saying can kind of be crude about it, but, like, you're de- you're definitely right. Like, this was a scene there I would definitely, like... It was put, emotional. I would put the whole, like, made love moniker on it. Like, it is... 
Absolutely. It is like, I don't know. It, it was passionate. Speak, yeah, speak for your, you know, yourselves, but like, good God. Like, that movie, that scene is both like passionate and loving, but also like so fucking hot. Um, like, like it, it, suffice to say, I think one I think of the it, reasons that. I think we're it, scratching at a fetish here for Colin. One of the reasons, know. well, first of all, Rachel Vice is a fetish unto herself. Fact. But, but you I, add the Soviet. I think uh, one of the reasons is know. like her expression throughout the entire interaction is like. <laughs> She looked like she was in pain. Well, it, it did actually. All right, I will give you like it did kind of look like that, but I feel like it also kind of looks like she like she wants nothing more than to like scream out in ecstasy. At one and point, she, she can't because they're like in a fucking mass of people, yeah. and so he's like partially trying to like shush her or like you know, but she's like she wants nothing more than to like Mom. cry out in pleasure, and and so she's got these like wide trembling eyes and like i'm sorry like i'm i'm popping a woody just like thinking about this the part of oh it for me <laughs> god for damn me. it i all right i don't have a woody do you want to check nope he, he jackson he he would be disappointed oh god looks like a partial okay. well mine always look like a partial but yeah, fair. That's, that's, that's me flying a full math buddy it's about girth versus you know yeah, it's it's actually it's actually girth over volume divided by the circumference squared. Is that the ratio? That's that's is, it. So is that why it curves to the left like that? That the the curve to the left is an added feature. Oh. That's that's like a, a you know like a pinstripe down the side of the car. Gotcha. Or like you know giving getting the V eight instead of the V six. Yeah. yeah. So the characters in this movie they had a sex scene. <laughs> well, for okay, so before we run away from that. What? <laughs> to Colin's credit, I will agree that there were moments in this scene where I was like, that's something you don't see in a sex scene very often. For example, like he talked about her wide trembling eyes. He talked about her expression through the whole thing. And for me, it was the moment where she was like biting his shirt to keep from screaming out. Oof, yeah. Like, take me there, Jackson. That take me moment there. in particular. Like, maybe she's... she had a headache and she was just trying to, like, get through that. I mean, we've all been there. Right. With Rachel Vice? Am uh, I the only one who's not been there? Wait, really? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, oh boy. Am I Danilov? Yeah. I'm Dan oh, boy. Yeah. Sorry, sorry bud. Oh, wait, no. I'm I'm Bob Hoskins. <laughs> oh. <laughs> From Hook. I'm Christian. Oh. <laughs> But that was it for me. That that was the moment where I was like, oh, this is clearly a lovemaking scene rather than a, hey, we're getting some cardio. Yeah, but it was a little bit of both, and it was awesome. I mean, cardio is always important, and if you're going to pick a way, 10 out of 10. I'm, I, I, I'm sorry I sound so thirsty when I'm talking I would get my cardio this, with Rachel Weiss any day of the week. Like, God, that scene. Ugh. So wow. one last thing before we move on. It probably didn't help the fact that, like, I first saw this scene when I was, like, first developing, you know, uh, uh, sort of... Um, a chubby? Feelings of a sexual nature. Feelings of, of, of you know, desire for Congress. So what, sexual. So what you're saying is uh, you saw this midst puberty. Yes, yes. Uh, this movie was, or this scene and this movie... In, were very pivotal developmentally for uh, me. I... It, it was like this scene, empty bras in the Victoria's Secret catalog and scrambled porn on Channel 98. Like there you go. that was it was like those three things sort of in concert. So really this scene has taught us more about Colin than than we thought we wanted to know. So the fun part is that's all there is to me. That's it's you you plumbed the depths. <laughs> I I've got nothing oh, I've else. I plumbed the depths all right. You don't want to go there. 
Well, that's the smell. This is this is oh. the this is the intellect. This is the basis of of everything that is me. So outside, except the, for the smell, that's outs- a whole different thing. Outside, they OD call in. <laughs> they bottle that in France, you know. I ain't wearing that's that. That's true. Okay, so what happens next? <laughs> <laughs> so I think we can kind of like sum this up pretty quick. Tanya joins the marksman division. Yep. Uh, to be closer to Zaitsev. Ed Harris sort of sets Sasha up in order to test whether or not he's feeding information to the Soviets. He definitely is. He ends up killing Sasha and hanging him from a lamppost. Yeah, uh, as, a, as a trap. You don't actually see the killing and you don't see the body in graphic detail. But, but you, you do, see him you, leading him to his death like George from Of Mice and Men. Yeah. You know, it's, oh, it's brutal. Well, ki- kind of, sort of. Lenny didn't know he was going to die, but Sasha definitely did, which I think made it worse in, yeah. in many ways. Um, so you don't see it in detail, but you do see a silhouette of a kid hanging from a lamppost, which is fucking brutal. Ugh. And basically, Zaitsev is smart enough not to take the bait and lays in wait. Meanwhile, Danilov and Tanya get uh, Sasha's mother out of there. They end up lying to her and telling her that Sasha defected and join the Germans, which sounds really dark, but is actually kind of like the best case scenario of like, hey, your son's not coming back, but he's with what is undoubtedly the strongest army in the world right now and he's safe, he's He's taken care of. Could be okay. Like it's just it's easier than saying that he's dead. Yeah. Which they definitely know is the case. That scene hurt me. I was just watching Rachel Vice's character just listen to this lie knowing the truth and lying to her friend her close friend mrs filipov blatant lie just saying yeah he's safe he's he's with the germans he's not coming back you need to leave now because there's nothing here for you anymore just funny i actually like i i found that scene easier to watch because of the lie Watching a mother grieve, grieve over, over her child. dead child, like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Uh, that that shit is so hard. But watching a mother sort of like reason out why it might be okay that her child, yeah, okay, betrayed their country, like boo fucking who, like, but the kid's probably safe. And she even like on the way to the boat is like, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. It may not be okay for me to say, but it might actually be a good thing. I mean, if the Germans win the war, like he's probably going to be safe, right? Like blah blah blah. blah. And it's like, nope, oof, oof. like, yeah. but. She could sort of hold on to that hope for the rest of her life. Um, Which is unfortunately probably going to be very short. In the way the way things are going, yeah. yeah. So Rachel Weiss, when they're on their way to the boat to uh, evacuate Mrs. Filipov. Filipov. Poznikov. Chekhov. Uh, An artillery shell comes in and Tanya, played by Rachel Weiss, gets like fucking blown up. Yeah, uh, we think she might be dead at this point. Yeah, she's, she's like, bleeding out. She's got a gut wound. It, gut wounds are nearly fatal in this day and age. So it, the prognosis is not good. Um, but she is put on the evacuation boat. With Mrs. Posnikov. Yeah. I would like to talk about this scene a little bit. So Mrs. Filipov has a pass to get over the Volga River out of Stalingrad uh, back to safe Russian motherland. And when the artillery strikes and uh, Tanya is wounded, she gives her pass to Tanya, effectively stranding her in Stalingrad. She has no safe passage back at this point. We never see her again, so it's safe to assume that she either got lost in the shuffle, either got a new pass, or she never made it. But she has a letter 
to Sasha that she's writing frantically as they're loading Tanya onto the boat to take her back across the Volga. And she pins it to this board that is covered in letters. And I said it out loud during the movie. I said, these are letters to the dead. I mean, these are letters to people. These are letters to loved ones. These are letters to friends, to family, to soldiers. But effectively, they are letters to the dead. You don't want to run the statistics on like, okay, of all the people who these letters are to, how many, how many, how many, made, it how many made it? Like, you're going to be very depressed by the number you come up with. And the fact that she wrote a letter to Sasha saying, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you, and hopefully someday we'll be reunited. And I'm fine. And I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm glad you're okay. Yeah, they're, they're one-party correspondents. And the audience knows that Sasha is gone. Mrs. Filipov is assuming that she is safe that he is safe tucked away somewhere in a in a german bed with a hot meal and it's heartbreaking to see that uh okay so basically after this is kind of the last sort of culminating scene in the movie danilov goes to visit vasily uh where he knows that he is laying in wait for the german to reveal himself even though he's not going to and again this is sort of that cat and mouse thing danilov is very distraught he feels like he's betrayed vasily uh, at one point he dictated a very angry letter uh, about vasily and sent it to uh, the russian higher-ups um he feels like he's betrayed his friend uh he also built up what he thought was his relationship with tanya to something that it wasn't and he's starting to like come to terms with that he's exceedingly depressed he also is sort of questioning the idea of the Soviet state as a truly egalitarian society and realizing that, like, no matter what, there will always be haves and have-nots. And this sort of, like, depressive episode, you know, leads to a monologue where he kind of tells the audience and Vasily about this and then says, I'm going to do something for you that is useful for once. Yeah, he says, I'm going to be useful for a change. And, and then he, he stands leans, up, leans out, and takes a fucking bullet through the head. Yeah. Yeah, he exposes himself so that Zaitsev can can, can get the shot in. Well, so he can know... His position. The position of the Russian sniper. Yep. And, and he, he can, knows... German sniper. The, the German sniper, you're right. And then he knows once the guy delivered the shot, he's going to come looking for Vasily to get his dog tags to prove his kill. And so Vasily actually doesn't stay. He goes out and he hides sort of among these trains... And uh, Ed Harris is walking, sees him out of the corner of his eye, freezes, takes his hat off, knows that he's beaten. I thought it was interesting. Like he, it was almost like a like an acknowledgement, you know, like hats off to you. You know, I, I don't, I, I almost feel like that was intentional. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, you could see, you could see in his face, like he he freezes, you know, like an animal would. Like, okay, if I don't move, maybe I've still got the advantage. And then you can see, like the, you can see him relax when he realizes, like, no, he's got me. Like, there's yeah. nothing I can do. And he stands up, takes his hat off, Vasily. makes direct eye contact. Yeah. Right, and they, they couldn't have dialogue because that would be unrealistic. You know, I, yeah. I felt like the the hat off really, it was the the acknowledgement. It was the. It was you've beaten me. You've won. Yeah. Here's your prize. Yeah. Gets shot right in the face, and uh, through the eye. And uh, he did. Yeah. And then uh, more or less roll credits. Um, there's a small black text screen that... There is a scene after that where Oh, he... sorry. You're right. You're right. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so Zaitsev has killed Koenig and goes to this hospital where even though he's been told Tanya has died, 
Danilov tells him that Tanya's dead because Danilov believes that Tanya is dead. Two months later, uh, Tanya is still in a hospital somewhere across the Volga, and it is revealed to us that Zaitsev has received correspondence from Tanya knowing she is here at this hospital, she is somewhere at this vicinity, or at least she has been recently. So he goes looking, and he looks for Tanya Chernobov, but there is nobody under that name because she traveled there under Mrs. Filipov's papers. So there's no record of Tanya Chernobov. So they make eye contact across the crowded room. They reunite. Roll credits. Yeah. And a small black text screen. It's like Vasily Zaitsev received Hero of Russia, which is like among the highest honors. Uh, his rifle can still be seen in museums, yada, yada, yada. Okay, so a couple things that we, we didn't touch on while we were doing our walkthrough. First of all, real quick, Ron Perlman's character motherfucker uh we mentioned that ron perlman is in this movie and then never talked about him uh so real quick basically he was a russian sniper that was sent to, to, to train under the germans before the war uh when germany and russia were still friendly um the war broke out and he was basically like extradited back to russia where he was placed in a russian prison and they were like what the fuck? Who are you? Like, why were you in Germany? Blah, blah, blah. They ended up breaking out all of his fucking teeth with a hammer, which is so brutal. <laughs> it's actually, so brutal. He actually says at one point, he's like, there there wasn't a sickle, but there definitely was a hammer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he trained under Head Harris, so he knew all of his tricks. He knew uh, sort of how to fight him. And um, it, it went nowhere. <laughs> No, but I think, like, what it sort of demonstrated was, like, he was a very good sniper, and his shit would work on just about anybody. The only reason it didn't work, like, there was there was a point where, like, he almost had him, and Ed Harris just didn't take the shot quick enough, mm-hmm. and had he, they would have fucking had him. And it just demonstrated that, like, he was a great sniper, but he wasn't the best in the world. Right. And that was, like, all that demonstrated, right? And so he ended up getting killed um, fairly quickly after his introduction, but fucking but ron perlman so it's, good it's standard ron perlman though you know he's never the main character always a b part but always memorable unless it's Hellboy. okay so what do we like uh, what did we like i i liked most of this movie the only thing close to like a criticism that i might have is i we're doing likes right now oh, we're doing likes we're doing likes right now okay uh well like i said i i I like just about all of it. You know. The depictions of war. I liked that it showed that both the Germans and the Soviets were terrible. You know, I mean, all all parties are terrible in war. War you know, is hell. Like it or not. But definitely, like I think it showed elements of both of them that were distinct to how terrible they both were. Right. Like there was a there was a very graphic depiction of the Nazis loading up a whole bunch of Jews in Stalingrad and then shipping them out under the presumption that we're gonna they were gonna go to a concentration camp, stopped about thirty miles out of Stalingrad along a river bridge, tied people together and then shot one and had basically the dead bodies drag the live people down under the water to kill them. Like just absolutely just heinous shit. Meanwhile, you've got the Russians gunning down their own people for running away from being basically pushed into a slaughter. Right. It was, you can go into the meat grinder or we can kill you ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I really liked in this movie, there was a scene where Vasily gets pinned down behind this like stove 
this like old fucking like cast iron stove and Ed Harris is like right on him. Like basically if he puts a fucking pinky outside of the the sort of cone of protection that this stove is offering, um, he'll get lit the fuck up. And like you're sitting there watching him be pinned down and then out of nowhere, a pocket knife on a string just pops out. Like it was fired from like a one of those party poppers, right? It just kind of out. And so basically in the events that led to him getting pinned down, his rifle got separated from him and the pocket knife on a string was designed to basically fish his rifle back to him. And I couldn't help but think during that scene, again, this is a thought that I never really had until I watched it with a little bit more critical of a lens. I couldn't help but think of that scene as like a great encapsulation of the battle between the sort of like homebrew, unconventional style of Zaitsev and the like cold, calculated, well-formed, well-articulated, and well-outfitted style of Ed Harris. And it was, like, really showing this sort of, like, scrappy bootstrap versus, like, preparation and skill and development, well, like, Koenig battle. Is, Koenig is sitting there inside of a kiln, aiming his rifle between the slats of a louver. And he's entrenched, he's set up his position, he's put his rifle up on sandbags, and he is well prepared to spend the night there versus Zaitsev who stumbled in here crawled through the pipes and landed on the ground and is pinned down behind a stove and is literally fishing his rifle back to him with a sort of like MacGyver style pocket knife and string yeah (laughs) and Ed Harris fucking like manages to put a bullet on the string from like what like 100 yards away yeah Um, but I love that scene because it, it really sort of like illustrates the dichotomy between these two characters um i also you know i have talked ad nauseum about this but like the casting was amazing the acting was incredible i think it's it's possibly rachel vices and bob hoskins like best roles um the writing was fantastic the sound the score and soundtrack danger theme that is James Horner's signature danger theme, which you can find in 36 movies since 1971 up until now. So, little known fact, he had this son uh, named Jack, and um, he was known affectionately as Little Jack Horner. Mm-hmm. And he was known for a few things, but mostly he really liked to, to sit in a corner. Yeah, you've definitely heard that sound before. It's basically the the, the Wilhelm scream for, I don't know. Doodle-doodle-doo films. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mask of Zorro, Continuum. Continuum of Zorro. Yeah. Enemy at the Gates, Mask Enem- of Zorro. Enemy at the Zorro. Gates of Zorro. Continuum of the Enemy. Something like that. Yeah. Also Bicentennial Man. Tricentennial Man, Quadcentennial Man. Bicentennial Man at the Gates. Yes. Bicentennial uh, <laughs> Zorro. Enemy at the Bicentennial. (laughs) (laughs) Enemy at the Bicentennial definitely sounds like a mid-90s action film starring Harrison Ford where... In 1976? Yeah, it's a film that takes place in 1976 where Harrison Ford has to defeat a whole bunch of America's enemies at a 4th of July celebration in his neighborhood. Right. Right. Give me back my family! Chinese government abducts his wife and he has to take them back while fighting the Russians at a 4th of July picnic. Definitely the second part, because it's it's definitely the Russians in 1976. 
Okay. Uh, Coincidentally, that is also the danger sound from the Brady Bunch when the, I can't remember the two characters' names, but they have matching tiki necklaces. And anytime they get into trouble, it plays the danger theme. Uh, but the other thing about the score and soundtrack is anybody notice that it was like remarkably similar to Braveheart? Yes, mm. it had it shared like some pretty strong elements with Braveheart, including the danger theme. I don't think the danger, think the danger theme was in Braveheart, Dang it. but it could have been. Uh, but there were there were actually other theme bites like that yeah. that did actually exist in Braveheart. Like it wasn't it wasn't all like a true sort of score. Sometimes it was sort of like repeating you know audio elements that that sort of drove the point and and that overlapped with that yeah is there anything we did not like uh i felt a little bit like there was some teleporting that went on um you know when we needed main characters at certain places you know how would daniloff's character know exactly where to go to meet up with zaitsev in the climactic ending scene Um, Like little things like that. It did not take me away from the movie, but there were some scenes where characters were meeting up and I kind of scratched my head a little bit. Like, how would you really know exactly where to go? It's a small gripe, but I think of, of everything that took place, that's the only thing that I might poke at. To Mark's point, I would agree. I mean, the fact that Koenig knew exactly where to meet Sasha and that he would meet up with Sasha every single time the fact that Zaitsev would escape from his precarious predicament being pinned down by another sniper to miraculously end up back at the shelter where they have been residing this whole time. Like, I would have liked to have seen Zaitsev extract at least once. That way we could kind of see the process. They do give the, like, the nuts and bolts of it, though. They yeah. Do, they, 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 it's they, not that they, it's not like he's, it's not a cliffhanger. It's not like he's pinned down and, like, suddenly he's back. Right. They do explain, even though they don't, maybe not show him running away from the situation, they do show. That's the, the glass scene with the The, the elements, the things that are, you know, helping him escape, right? Mm-hmm. Like the sunlight and then the shooting in the hand and then, mm-hmm. you know, all that. Yes, that's true. I was not a huge fan of when the sex scene ended. Um, I could have, I could have done with that movie. That just sort of like, just four ru- hours of that running through the end of the movie, yeah. and then probably a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. What? Do we have any quotes that we didn't get to? I think we peppered our quotes kind of throughout. I do have one that we didn't get to, and it was in that scene that Mark was describing where Bob Hoskins was sort of walking up and down and berating some of the political officers, and he says, This city is Stalingrad. This city bears the name of the boss. This city is a symbol. And I just felt like that was so fucking... So poignant. It was yeah. so strong in conveying why the Russians felt the way that they felt about defending this particular city and why it was so important to Stalin himself, but also to the Russian people, why this city just couldn't fall. Yeah, it was it was a heap of rubble. And I think that's even mentioned that like, you know, one of the characters kind of mentions, you know, like, I don't think it's phrased like this, but there's the question of why are they fighting for it? You know, there there isn't a really a strategic value in this in this area. But and it was it was one of the Germans speaking. Yeah. yeah, it was one of the German officers. And he was basically like, we could just roll right on through and just kind of keep going. And basically the response was like, no, Hitler wants this place crushed yeah, Fuhrer wants it and the the officer that's saying this piece he's like this city has been reduced to rubble but the Fuhrer wants us here and 
He's led us to victory so far, so who are we to question him? Which is basically like, you think about this, it's like a two-man war, right? It's like Stalin and Hitler both want this city. Yeah. For basically the same reason. Yeah. It bears Stalin's name, and it's a symbol of Soviet pride. And so, you know, Hitler wants to crush it, to crush Soviet morale, and Stalin wants to save it so as not to allow Soviet morale to crumble. Yeah. Um... I have one more quote. Yes, sorry. So, uh, Hoskins' character, Khrushchev, is berating yet again somebody over the phone, presumably a Russian officer, and he says, I don't care if you've lost half your men. Lose the other half. Or better yet, lose yourself. (laughs) Yeah. that That is a great scene. They're a great quote. Okay, so before we go into ratings, we need to talk about something, guys. Yeah? We need to talk about something. Sit down. Everybody sit down. You're already sitting. Everybody sit down harder. Kerthump. I was going to say, Jackson really gave it an effort, Mark. I gave it a kerthump. He we'll, phoned we'll, it we'll, in. We'll work, we'll work on that. Uh, we have an email. What? We have an email. What? Like a real one? It's as real as the zeros and ones that are making it up on my phone. My oh God. Oh, my God. Mother of God. Uh, it is from our friend and brother and three men in a basement alum. Timothy Magic? Timothy Magic. <gasps> what? My God. Mr. Tim. So I am going to read this aloud. Oh, God. I'm actually going to read all of it because uh, there is actually, like, so he, he he leads off with sort of like a personal note, and it's actually kind of important. So he says, men, I'm thrilled the podcast is back. Just caught up. Colin, it seems Meet the Feebles did not load. It plays How to Lose Friends and Alienate People when I clicked on the latest episode. I'm going to interject here and say, um, that was the personal note, by the way. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, that definitely happened. So if you were listening to the last episode and it seemed to play How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, that was a technical glitch that we had. It has since been fixed. But if you went to click on that episode and it didn't work, uh, try to re-download it and it should work now. Tim's message continues, but I'm writing and hoping you can answer some of my questions. Last week's episode got me turning over. Uh, Question one, Colin, you mentioned your love of movies within movies, but do you have a favorite fictional brand name item like Red Apple Cigarettes or Stave Puff Marshmallows? Mm. I'm going to go with Booty Juice. Booty Sweat. Booty Sweat. Booty Sweat sweat sweat. from uh, Tropic Thunder. Oh, fuck. Booty Sweat's a good answer. That is a great one. Oh, damn, Mark. That was so good. Yes. Uh, okay, you know what? Actually, kind of going with the energy drink thing, I'm going to go with Brondo the Thirst Mutilator. <laughs> Idiocracy. Yeah. Uh, Brondo the Thirst Mutilator, you know, the the good thing about it is it's is it's got electrolytes. and um, But it's got electrolytes. It's got electrolytes. I'm going to have to go with Slurm. Ooh. Wow, we really went drink, like, energy <laughs> yeah. drink heavy on this. Um, <clears throat> question two. Jackson, you seem thrilled to hear about Daniel Craig's small role in the Kid in King Arthur's Court. Do you have a favorite before they were famous minor roles from some household names in this day and age? Mm, I will say, uh, oh God, his name is escaping me right now, but... Bill the, Clinton. The guy that plays... Ted Danson. The Captain America character from Amazon Prime's The Boys. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Home, Homelander. Yes. Homelander. Homelander. So the guy that plays Homelander. Anthony mm-hmm. Starr. Anthony Starr. Is that oh! actually his name? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, Mark remembered his name. Hang on. You know what? Hang All right. On. Hey. We need proof. Okay. Whether this is true or not, 
I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm so glad I reminded all of us to sit down. Yeah. Would you have fainted? I would have fainted. Would you have fallen over? I definitely would have. Yeah. I would have had a sinkable episode right here and now. Yep. Just falling right into the sink. Yep. Yes! Oh! Yes! Mark, oh! Mark may or may not be humping the I got it. microphone. He just made comments. I got it. Sexual. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm right. proud of you. I am so proud of you. That was pretty, that was pretty, that was like that wasn't even like I mean I know he's like a big name in that show, but I can't think of anything else he's done. Yeah. So I'm gonna like I'm gonna like that was really impressive. fucking give Mark some props that here. That was amazing. Because that was a that, not a super deep cut, but for us that was a deep. That cut. That was a pretty deep cut. Because I had no idea what the fuck that guy's so, name was. Boom. Anthony Starr, who plays Homelander in The Boys. Also played across from Butcher from The Boys. Lightning. Carl Urban? Carl Urban. Yeah, Lightning mm-hmm. Strikes once. Only once. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair Ever. Enough. Never strikes again. Anthony Starr and Carl Urban were both in a little-known production called Xena the Warrior Princess. Yeah, I, I do remember Carl Urban playing uh, Hermes. Or was it Hermes? Cupid. It was Cupid. Cupid. It was Cupid. He was all gold. He was painted gold. And who he looked. So, so yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm thirsty in this episode. I'm thirsty for some Carl Urban right now. To your question, Tim, (laughs) my favorite before they were famous was the dual portrayal of Anthony Starr and Carl Urban from Xena the Warrior Princess, which aired before I was born. I have a lot of favorite before they were famous kind of thing, but I've got to say the one that jumped out in my head I, I fucking love when people who, like, made it big in Hollywood were in, like, commercials and shit. Oh, yeah. There, there's a whole bunch of great ones. There's, like, Paul Rudd was in a Super Nintendo commercial. <laughs> um, Keanu Reeves was in a Corn Flakes commercial. Wow. Um, Bruce Willis was in a Seagram's wine cooler commercial, which no. is hilarious because he's in a white suit and he's literally skipping around town with like three women on his arms, mm. like you know. But I, I but That's my, amazing. but the one that actually popped into my head, my favorite, is Jason Alexander in a McDonald's commercial advertising the McDLT. Do you guys remember the McDLT? Yes. This is like the fucking the cool side and the hot side, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and <laughs> fucking Jason Alexander is just dancing around. The McDLT, and there's a cool side, and there's a hot side, and, and like everybody on the streets asking about it, it's fucking wild. Oh my it's god, it's wild. All right, I'd say one of my favorites, maybe uh, the movie Mars Attacks, has a oh. lot of these mm-hmm. little nuggets in them, and I would say that Jack Black in Mars Attacks, that was kind of before Jack Black was a household name. Yeah, for sure. You know. And uh, he plays this jarhead who ends up just getting absolutely vaporized. But that, that's mine. Jack Black actually, like, he had a lot of those roles before he was, like... Jack Black and Seth Green mm-hmm. had a yeah. lot of those. And, and I, I think the reason why I associate Jack Black and Seth Green are one of the great examples of, like, before they were, like, a household name was Enemy of the State. Oh, yeah. They were both in that as sort of, like, minor characters. Enemy of the State also has a whole bunch of people like before they're famous. And actually, if we're doing movies that like a whole bunch of people before they were famous, Wet Hot American Summer. Oh my god. Dude, yes. that movie is literally everybody before they're famous. 
Yeah. Like, so, so good. I don't know if this counts, but it was brought to my attention when I watched it the other day. I rewatched Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, and the punk goth chick that says, guy with eight limbs, sounds hot. That is Lucy Lawless. Awesome. Fucking Xena Warrior Princess. Awesome. Has a two-second bit in Spider-Man. Like, zero credit to her role in the movie because it's totally irrelevant but the fact that they got xena the warrior princess to dress up in a colorful wig and a bunch of leather to just fetishize a spider-man she's hilarious she's awesome. i i like i like lucy laws if I think... you haven't watched spartacus you need to <clears throat> i think i think we would be friends uh okay finishing out tim's email and i can't leave mark out question three mark what's your favorite moment of full frontal male nudity from cinema oh man I mean, where do I where do I begin? Um, I've got so many that I can't recall right now. Man. Yes, that's what we're talking about. Man, man. men. Well, men, man, man, man bits. Men in tights. Oh, well, men out of tights. Men out of tights. Exactly. Do 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 do. Favorite wiener. Favorite wiener. Favorite wiener. Oh man! This is not the first time he's chanted that, which is you know we cut it out of most. Usually he's looking down at yeah. the time. <laughs> this is my favorite. This is my favorite. This is my buddy. Wiener, wiener, pumpkin eater. Okay. Wiener, wiener, chicken um, dinner. <laughs> maybe this is not my favorite, but it's certainly the most scarring. There's a quick scene in um, Bruno. Yeah, oh, you seen Bruno? There's Bruno good. Yeah, yeah. Zer Bruno good. Uh, I was working at the theater at the time, and I walked in to do a quick uh, just check of the auditorium. Walked in, and suddenly there was a phallus that was arcing its way across the thirty foot screen, just 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 windmilling, you know. Uh, and I took that opportunity to. Um, well, to walk right out. But that has stuck with me, I think, more than anything else, is the, what was, I guess, you know, if we if we go uh, radii on this, it's yeah. a 15-foot Johnson, um, you know, maybe three to four feet in girth, just swinging around. Um, That's math. You know? is That's was, dick math. Yeah. I'm it's, never going to forget that. It's geometry. Um, what was your favorite uh, wiener, Jackson? So, again referencing Lucy Lawless, because I seem to be stuck on that train, um, Spartacus, one of my all-time favorite HBO shows, there is a lot of wiener in this show. It's much like Game of Thrones. So, in that I, so I do need to see this movie. You do. For this show. You do. There's two of them, Spartacus and Spartacus Blood and Sands, both great. Um, That's Are those the name of the wieners? Yes. Oh. Yes. So you, you blood and sand sounds like I probably would not enjoy. So Joe, Joe, it's <laughs> like Anakin in Star Wars Episode Two. I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough. It gets all over my severed wiener. Yeah. Uh, you do see that too. Um, Joe Manganiello is actually in Spartacus, the, the senator that keeps holding up all of the votes. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of. The, <laughs> I'm thinking of the Punisher. Um, <laughs> The other Joe, <laughs> but uh, in Spartacus Blood or in Spartacus, there is a character that they affectionately refer to as Horsecock, and you don't actually <laughs> see the Horsecock for several episodes after he's introduced. He's one of the gladiators. In but the you show. can't promise something like that and not deliver, right? So they're lining them up for a slave auction, 
and in order to sell them at the highest bidder, they have to be naked to see their potential. And you get to see Horsecock's penis, and I swear to God, it is at least 10 inches long Jesus. and probably two or three inches wide. Oh my and God. my jaw dropped to the floor, and I said the words, Holy shit, that's a big dick. <laughs> Roll credits. So I would say that is by far my favorite full frontal in cinema. Horsecock's penis from Spartacus. Are we going to talk about my favorite Wee Wee? Yeah. No? Let, please. Yeah. Okay. Please share your favorite Johnson. <laughs> Keep it short. <laughs> He's stalling. Uh, yeah, no, I'm trying to think. Honestly, I thought the, the cock in... Uh, how to lose friends and alienated people was pretty apt but if i had to go for like placement it would probably be a tie between how to lose friends and alienated people and forgetting sarah marshall mm, okay yeah. like i i felt like the forgetting sarah marshall like i felt like that really fucking like clocked people in you know it just came out of nowhere it did i feel like i well i feel like judd apatow had such a suite of movies at that point and um for the record Got it. <laughs> it came out of nowhere. Uh, but I feel like he had such a suite of movies at that point that like people were familiar with that they weren't expecting just like Dong to be hung in like the first like fifteen minutes. Yeah. And I like I I fucking appreciate Judd Apatow for being like, "There's Dong in this. That's yeah. A, fucking go for it. That's a dick. That's a dick. That's a big old dick." Uh, yeah. And then Tim finishes out the email with, "Thanks, fellas. Hope to hear your take on Meet the Feeble soon. Your friendly neighborhood cinephile." Timothy M. Actually, it's... God bless you, Tim. It is very possible that the first time, first and only time I had watched Meet the Feebles prior to our viewing was with Tim circa, I'm not joking, probably 20 years ago. Jesus. <laughs> well, 15, 15 years ago, maybe. Thank you, uh, Mr. Magic. Thank you, Mr. Magic. Our first email. Appreciate you, Tim. Read them out. Um, still waiting on Cedric. Step it up, Cedric. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, man. I hate to I hate to put a fine point on it, but Cedric, you're our only other fan, and uh, you're you're lagging behind here. Yeah. I, I mean, other than obviously Mike Tyson, but yeah. I mean, he's he's not really sending anything but threats. So he's a busy I, guy. I can't read that. Um, Most of them come via mail, and a lot of the letters are cut out of magazines or arranged Morton toes that yes. he's collected. You know, Cedric's never sent us a toe. A little disappointed on that yep. myself. Uh, are we ready to rate this bitch? Yeah, let's let's rate it. Um, I'll jump in first. You're gonna hang that first dong. I'm gonna hang it. I'll jump in first. Uh, okay. Can we just appreciate that? Like fucking, how to lose friends and alienate people has like spillover dong conversation. Absolutely. Like that's yeah. that that is potent dong. That it's, it's having us discuss it. I I think it's, it's in, in this in, episode. It's in part because of its partnership with the boob. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they when they work together, it's a combo you man, don't see often on the same individual. They get shit done. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go with uh, eight point one. Nice bullets. Fair. There were plenty of those. Eight point one. That's one of my higher. How's about y'all's? Uh, I am going to go with eight point five silver teeth. Ooh. Nice. I'm not entirely sure if those teeth were silver, but um, they looked silver. They did look silver, and silver is a pretty common. Like you have to use precious metals typically. Like you yeah. can't, you know, in in dental work. Um, Ron Perlman's character 
like we said, had all of his fucking teeth broken out by the the Russian military. Brutal. So he just had this fucking mouthful of metal, um, which just looked so badass on him. Like, how many people could pull off, like... And I'm not talking like a, a grill of silver. I'm not teeth. talking like a grill, like it was curated by a dentist in a, the United States in like 2010. I'm talking about like literally a fucking fistful of silver teeth style things crammed into your fucking mouth by a Soviet dentist circa 1940. Yeah. Like how, how many people can pull that off? Ron well, Perlman. One. There's one. And yep. it's Ron Perlman. Yep. What do you got, Mrs. Jackson? I will go 8.7 helmet dummies. I like it. Nice. Which is a reference to a tactic that Ron Perlman used against Koenig. um, Unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully, where after firing a kill shot on a essentially disposable victim, uh, thus giving away their position, they would raise a helmet into the window for Koenig to fire back so that they could nail him. But of course, Koenig's too smart for that, didn't fire a shot, and they moved on. To be fair, I think it wasn't that he was too smart. I think he just didn't take the shot fast enough. They should have left the helmet up longer. They kind of they built it up like he was, he was about to take the shot and then didn't have time to because they like lowered the helmet. See, I disagree because there was a visible smirk when he noticed the helmet. So they raised the helmet, he was about to take the shot, and they closed in on his face, and he just had a little bit of a lilt to his left cheek, saying, hmm. And then he hedged and didn't take the shot. Waited several seconds that he could have made a kill shot. I, I'm gonna have I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree on this one. That's fair. View, viewers, go ahead and make up your mind. I think I think he went to take the shot and the helmet started lowering before he could take it, or like take a good one. But, I think he chose not to take the shot because it was too obvious. I no the, sniper would give away his position like that. I think the, I think the viewers need to weigh in on this. I what agree. do you think? Well, um, <clears throat> as a viewer of the movie, um, Mark's gonna hedge. Watch this. Pick a pick a wiener, Mark. I I came away with it with the impression that he intentionally did not shoot. Fair enough, but. I'm, st- I'm, I'm still staying with my position. But I, However, I, I think it's very valid uh, to, to interpret it differently. And what is what is art if not open to interpretation? Life imitates art. God damn it. <laughs> I was, you, you called me, though. Right. Uh, but that is all that we have for the Old Crip Review, correct? I believe so. Are we Laura Dern? I yeah. believe we are Laura Dern. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for movie reviews, email us at 3. That is the number three, men in a basement at gmail.com. Please make sure to check out Chugga Chugga Burr Burr, who are opening for Booger Mortis at Zergufershufen. I, I think it's pronounced Zergufershufengarten. Zergufershufen stage, um, which is allegedly also a band, but I, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, they haven't actually performed for the public yet. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. And until then, I am Colin McLeod. Michael Action Jackson. And we will uh, see you in cyberspace. Sugar to boo. <laughs> <laughs> I did it that time. <laughs> I, like it. I like it.